You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Hello, and welcome to Coronavirus Crisis Update. June 9th, I had a chance to sit down with Congressman Tom Cole, Republican of Oklahoma, long a champion of health security and a member of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. Congressman Cole is a leading member of the Republican Party. He is a ranking member on the Labor HHS Subcommittee of Appropriations, as well as a senior member of the Appropriations Defense Subcommittee, two places where His influence on health security is very significant. He's also an enrolled member of the Chickasaw Nation and one of only six Native Americans currently serving in Congress. We spoke about funding and programmatic priorities for global health security, the United States' ongoing leadership role in the world, why tribal communities manage the pandemic so well, and his hopes for bipartisanship in a divided Congress. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on wherever you are. I'm Jay Stephen Morrison, Senior Vice President at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where I direct our global health work. And we're delighted to be joined today by Congressman Tom Cole. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Let me just say a few quick words of introduction and thanks, and then we'll start the conversation. Uh, Congressman Cole's in his 10th term in the House of Representatives representing the 4th District in Oklahoma. Uh, He currently serves uh, as the vice ranking member of the full Appropriations Committee, and he's ranking member of the Subcommittee of Labor, Health and Human Services, Education and Related Agencies, terribly important for all of these global health security matters we're talking about. He's also a senior member of the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Defense, which obviously also has a very important role when we're talking about health security at home and abroad. Uh, He's the ranking member of the full House Rules Committee, where he served since 2013 and is a deputy whip of the Republican Conference. Uh, He's also a member and enrolled member of the Chickasaw Nation, uh, one of six members serving in the member uh, in the in, in Congress who are Native Americans. Uh, Congressman Cole has kindly served for the past three years on the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. It's been terribly important to, and valuable for Tom, Congressman, for to have you be with us in that commission. We'll be continuing through 2022. Very, very grateful to you for that. Also very grateful your staff, Sabrina Parker, Shane Hand, and Josh Grogas have been terribly helpful to us. Here on the CSIS side, Amith Mondavili, John Montz is our producer today, uh, and, and very grateful to them. So let's start our conversation. I wanted, last week was the 100th anniversary of the, of the terrible massacre of the Black Wall Street neighborhood, the Greenwood, Greenwood community in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You were active in that period uh, congressionally in memorializing that, but also I just wanted to ask you for your reflections on that moment, it's a it was a big historical moment of reflection. It, it was, and uh, thank you for mentioning it. Obviously, uh, uh, a terrifically um, horrific incident in uh, the history of Oklahoma, uh, and one that for many many decades, quite honestly, uh, I think the state tried to hide from, didn't teach it in school, didn't know anything about it. It's amazing to me the number of people that. Uh, Uh, are only learning about this in Oklahoma, uh, you know, really within the last couple of years. And uh, I've had uh, any number of friends and colleagues say, gosh, why wasn't that taught in school? Well, you know, there are a lot of things uh, in our history that uh, uh, are not uh, not not moments that we're proud of, but there are there are moments that we learn from. And I really want to commend the people in Tulsa who uh, came together really across racial lines, across partisan lines, uh, have worked for a number of years at the state level. We had a commission at the state legislature over this event. Uh, and, uh, you know, to try and come to terms with it, what would be the appropriate way to memorialize it, to learn from it, 
uh, and to, uh, uh, you know, use it as a, a reminder of uh, what can happen uh, when we, you know, live to our worst instincts up instead of up to our best ideals. So um, I was very proud of the delegation. We all worked together on a, uh, a commemorative resolution about this. I think it's an appropriate resolution. There's also one by the, uh, the Black uh, Caucus uh, in the House. I thought that was a very appropriate resolution as well. Uh, so uh, again, we're uh, we're learning, hoping to get better, and uh, uh, and I think we will, and uh, I think we have, and, uh, and uh, I don't say that with any uh, uh, any uh, um, pretense that we don't still have racial issues in Oklahoma. We certainly do, uh, but uh, uh, it's just a much better place. I, I remember, I reflect, uh, <laughs> I remember once uh, when uh, my son and I were talking about race and he's now a public school teacher and he was quite young at the time. And I mentioned to him that, uh, uh, you know, I was old enough uh, to have uh, ridden across parts of Oklahoma and the South when the, the signs were no colored allowed. And he looked at me like, how old are you, dad? I mean, wasn't that the Civil War? And I said, no, this is living memory. This is the 1950s and 60s. Um, and uh, I'm not proud that that happened in the country, but I'm proud it doesn't happen anymore. And you think of all the struggle uh, that went into uh, making sure that we uh, began to uh, live up and try and form a more perfect union, literally in our lifetime. So these things are important. They're important milestones. And uh, thank you for mentioning it. And uh, again, we're going to learn from it and try to do better as a state. We hope we do better as a country. Thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, it was from a distance here, it was very moving to observe uh, these these different memorial activities that surrounded that anniversary. Um, well, I thought it was really well done. The, the mayor there is a, actually a very good friend of mine and known his family. He has both a, a um, uncle and a, a grandfather that were also mayors uh, in uh, Tulsa history. So uh, not in the 1920s, but in the period between the 60s and 70s. And so he has a deep sense of history of his community. And he did a wonderful job pulling everybody together. Thank you. Well, let's turn our, our attention now to uh, matters pertaining to health security. Let's talk about here at home, the national vaccination campaign. And I'd like to talk to you also about how things are going in Oklahoma. There's been remarkable progress across the country in the last 120 days. Um, and we also are hitting a, a plateau of sorts. And we're, we're beginning to come to terms. We've got over half of our adult population uh, fully vaccinated right now. Uh, there's been some dramatic shift of opinion in favor of winning, of, of getting the vaccine as, po as quickly as possible. But we're also struggling with hesitation, people having continuing to have questions about this, some who are refusing to 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 consider the vaccine. And tell us your thoughts on the progress that we've achieved. How did how do we explain that? And and looking forward, uh, how do we how do we carry the progress forward? What do you think we're going to look like as we head into the fall? Well, I think uh, I think you're right to stress that it's uh, it's successful, but it's still a pretty mixed bag out there, mixed picture, if you will. Uh, I'm very pleased. I mean, I'm pleased with Operation Warp Speed. I thought it was a tremendous tribute uh, to the public-private partnership that uh, put us in a position in less than a year to have multiple vaccines of high, unbelievably high uh, efficacy. Uh, you know, and uh, I remember when we were talking early on, we a successful vaccine was defined as something that would give you 50 percent protection. You know, we had two in the 90s, another in the high 70s or low 80s. Um, and again, uh, the effort, uh, uh, previous efforts took, you know, up to four years, this was done in about 10 months. And I remember talking to an NIH scientist who said, do your constituents realize this is the biomedical equivalent of the Manhattan Project? I mean, this is an extraordinary commitment of resources and talent. Uh, and I'm really proud of everybody that was involved in that uh, and what they achieved. Um, and the rollout, uh, you know, like all rollouts, this is a big continental nation, 330 million people, every race, ethnicity, point of view on the planet. Um, uh, but I think we did pretty well, uh, you know, and certainly it's available 
easily available uh, essentially anywhere in the United States. Now we're running into the problem. Uh, obviously, people that uh, uh, wanted it got it pr- as quickly as possible. I, I know I certainly did, and uh, my family certainly did. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, we do have resistance. We have some people that have an ingrained mistrust of the government. Uh, we have other people that just think this was so fast and it's an emergency basis and maybe there's some mysterious problem down the road. Uh, we have others, honestly, they're just lazy. Uh, they think, well, I'm, I'm going to be protected because everybody else around me is getting the vaccine, so I don't have to. And uh, that's a pretty uh, unenlightened attitude uh, because, frankly, you're at grave risk. I mean, you're much less likely to get it now, but the rates of hospitalization and death among people that have not had the vaccine are, are not markedly different than they were when, when we were having much wider uh, distribution. If you get it, it's, it's deadly. And so you should take the measures that uh, would keep you from getting it in the first place, even though your protection is going up because of other people. So, yeah, and I, I think there's a lot to learn here. I think there's also... Uh, to me, the big lesson is the ongoing. We've been having problem with people not getting the vaccinations they need in a variety of areas for a number of years now. And again, part of this is complacency, but we probably need to have a public education program comparable to what we do in tobacco uh, and some other things. And I recognize this is something we're going to have to work at over time. Uh, and uh, we're going to have to make our, our population more comfortable uh, with availing themselves of the protections that are here. Uh, and then, you know, and then I look globally there, I'm less satisfied. Uh, I'm very happy for the United States, but I'm, you know, we live in a world where you can't practice isolationism when it comes to vaccinations and disease. Uh, you know, it moves with incredible speed across borders. Uh, and so um, enlightened self-interest would dictate that we'd be heavily involved in helping the rest of the world. And uh, so it certainly looks to me like the administration's trying to do that and we're beginning to move in that that direction. So uh, again, some knotty issues ahead of us, but overall, I think if you uh, went back a year ago and said, this is where we will be in a year, in uh, June of uh, 2020, you wouldn't have believed it would be possible uh, that we would have the vaccines, that we would have uh, the distribution, that we would have the falling rates of uh, infection, hospitalization, and and death. So uh, I think you got to try, uh, got to uh, uh, chalk it up as a great success, uh, a great bipartisan success, a great success between two administrations that don't like one another particularly and uh, aren't very good at giving uh, the other. A uh, pat on the back. I'll give them both a pat on the back. I think they deserve it. And I think we'd be better off with the country if we recognize that. This is an area there shouldn't be any partisan division in. This is an area that we can cooperate on. And uh, we've demonstrated that. And, and we need to keep it, keep that firmly in mind as we go forward, because uh, I hope we don't see anything like this again, Or, uh, but uh, you certainly can't count on it. Thank you. Um- you know, we've we've heard from Kaiser Family Foundation, Pew Research Center, other pollsters, uh, as they've looked at the, the those who are in the movable middle, those who are waiting to make a decision, who have some outstanding concerns, plus those the 13, 14 percent who are pretty, pretty dug in and opposed to taking vaccine vaccine that there's there's a, a great concern at trying to connect to evangelical and and conservative voters the particularly those in rural males are a particular concern. And I've been encouraged that uh, the, the very well-known uh, Republican uh, pollster, um, Frank Luntz has joined with Brian Castrucci doing a series of, of focus groups that have been very illuminating and have also enlisted those who are MDs within Congress, uh, Republican MDs to come together and they've been, begun doing public service announcements I mean, it's we're seeing leadership um, at the Republican level uh, to coming from various directions to try and get the message out and connect and understand what those concerns are in terms of what are the concerns of those who are on the fence. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's true. And um, again, Frank's actually a very good friend of mine. We're, uh, I'm a recovering pollster myself from my time before I was in Congress. So the guy that I've uh, admired for a long time. I'm pleased that you mentioned him. 
and our doc caucus has really been pretty spectacular on this all the way through. We have a very, I don't know why, we have more, more physicians that are Republican in Congress than Democrat, and they have been a very active legislative force uh, all the way through this, an informative force, very helpful. So I, I do think, again, you know, we've, different elements of the population, uh, people forget evangelicals are not uh, not just Republicans. Uh, the the African-American community is heavily evangelical as well. That's been another area right. uh, where we have not had the penetration we would want to have. Uh, so, you know, we have pockets uh, of the population. If you actually looked at it, honestly, it tends to be uh, collectively, uh, you know, a, a portion of the population is a little bit not as well off, not as well educated, uh, lives in more isolated and uh, sometimes even more homogeneous uh, type communities. So, uh, you know, there's some things to think through here. But the bottom line is pretty simple to me. Uh, this works. It's saving lives. It's a remarkable achievement. And um, you know, while I respect people that have a different opinion on these sorts of things and uh, recognize that the United States is a free country and you have lots of, of, of freedom, I do think we need to have a pretty aggressive uh, public advocacy here uh, for, uh, you know, using these vaccines. Uh, and uh, hopefully that will continue. You find very few responsible political leaders on either side that don't make the point this is something you should do. Uh, and so I've been pleased with that in a divided time that on this, we've been speaking pretty much with one voice. Um, I'm, I've been impressed with, with the gains within the Native American populations in Oklahoma. What explains that outcome? Do you you know, uh, partly uh, it's the, the cultures there. Uh, we've got 39 recognized tribes, including uh, the Cherokees, which they and the Navajo go back and forth between the uh, uh, which one is actually the largest uh, uh, COVID sort of helped the Navajos uh, find more Navajos because they were providing <laughs> treatment. And so they edged out the Cherokees. But these are really big tribes with very substantial health care. Uh, Choctaws, Chickasaws fit in that kind of creeks. Uh, these are, again, tribes of 70,000 to uh, over 300,000 members. Uh, and they maintain very uh, robust health care capabilities, not just don't rely on the Indian health care service. These are gaming tribes and tribes that uh, have substantial economies. My own tribe has a three billion, 70,000 plus people, three billion dollar budget, 14,000 jobs, um, you know, multiple business ventures. But it um, it spends a lot of money on top of federal money on health care. Uh, and um, uh, that's not uncommon in Oklahoma. Plus, in the first CARES Act uh, in uh, last year, we got something that was unprecedented and worked very hard on this with now Secretary Howland uh, on a bipartisan basis. And uh, she and I and other members uh, uh, were able to secure about $8 billion in $150 billion set aside for state, local, and tribal governments. Um, for that was actually the largest transfer of wealth uh, to Indian tribes uh, by the federal government in the history of the United States. And we topped that again uh, with the, the most recent CARES Act actually did better. So uh, these these tribes were given, um, uh, you know, some fairly substantial amounts of money to attack the problem. And they in Oklahoma, they not only helped their tribal members, uh, but pretty much uh, as soon as they knew they were getting sufficient supplies, they opened up and a lot of our tribes are located in rural, more remote parts of the state. And it was sort of, you know, anybody can come, just make an appointment, come on down, or we're, we're going to do a mass vaccination uh, sponsored by the Chickasaw Nation. I actually went by their site in Ada, Oklahoma, uh, where they had cars lined up and, you know, there were people there. They didn't care if you were native or non-native, uh, Chickasaw or not. Uh, if you showed up, you were going to get vaccinated. So, it actually gave us um, uh, an arm, uh, you know, in a lot of the, of course, one of the problems, one of the challenges with the vaccine is, you know, the storage of it uh, in extraordinarily low temperatures. Uh, a lot of places in rural America don't have facilities that you can store things. Fortunately for us, our Indian hospitals did. And so we had a network uh, out there where we could move into the rural part of the state a little bit better than places that, you know, you could have had the same population, but didn't have a tribal structure, a governmental structure, a set of resources, a set of uh, 
uh, of trained people. And so uh, that, that helped us initially. Now we've fallen back off this. We've run into typical uh, sort of Oklahoma populist resistance to nobody can tell me what to do. But in the early days, we were actually one of the fi- top five or 10 in the country in terms of initial vaccinations. And I would say the uh, tribal entities, which did hundreds of thousands of vaccinations in the state, were probably the reason why we, our performance was better than we would have anticipated. Well, Oklahoma is sort of keeping pace with the national figures, right? You're over 50 yeah. percent of adults vaccinated at this point in Oklahoma. Still a lot of work to do, but you're at pace with the national the national. Uh, uh, yeah, well, fig- we're doing okay. I would like to do better than that pace. So, uh, uh, yeah, but but again, our tribes have been incredible partners uh, in all this. And that uh, it's given us you know, a tool that uh, other people don't have. And I'm very proud of them for the stepping up. And I, and again, I think our state effort has been uh, well led. And um, so we're, we're trying, but uh, you know, if you looked at it demographically, we have a lot of the, the same groups that nationally uh, are more resistant. And uh, so uh, we're just going to have to work at it. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud of what we're trying to do. Thank you. You know, one of the discoveries during this pandemic has been how weak our public, our local public health authorities have been in terms of staffing budgets, data systems, surveillance, uh, quick response capacities. And in the emergency measures that have been passed, which you've been deeply involved with those emergency measures, over $300 billion dedicated towards um, uh, reform of and, and strengthening uh, of uh, the pandemic response how, when you think about those numbers and you think about this opportunity for strengthening those 3,500 public health jurisdictions across the country, do you have a sense of how well that money is being spent to improve staffing, data systems, surveillance capacities? Uh, this is a big moment in trying to correct something that we really didn't understand until the pandemic hit us and we saw this suddenly very vividly. Yeah, I think that's correct. I think it's actually being spent quite well. Uh, you know, actually, the Labor H uh, subcommittee on approach has been focused on this for a while. We actually had some hearings before the pandemic on the need to update our diagnostics uh, all across the country in terms of getting information more rapidly, being able to track disease, what it was going to take. Um, you know, I wish we'd had those hearings a couple of years ago. Uh, maybe we would have been a little bit better prepared and, and provided information. But uh, we do have a, a, a an important opportunity here to capitalize uh, the public health care system. I was pretty stunned years ago when I became the chairman of this subcommittee to find out my own state, over 60 percent of the public health budget was coming from the CDC. You know, the state just simply wasn't doing its part. And I think the national number is about 50 percent. Um, we have some states New York uh, usually is a real leader uh, in this area. Uh, you know, long tradition out of New York City, really for many, many decades, over a century of, of uh, excellence in public health. But, um, you know, by and large, uh, too many of our states have thought of this as primarily a federal responsibility. And it is in a, in a sense that uh, we need uniform standards across the country, but it doesn't mean that the state level, you can't do something too. Uh, and so uh, I do think we're going to have a problem there. Longer term, uh, though, I do think the case has been made for these investments. Uh, I was pleased. Uh, I have a lot of areas I disagree with the president's budget on. I'm sure we'll talk about some of that a little bit later. But I don't disagree on his top line number for the CDC, for the NIH, for the strategic stockpiles. As a matter of fact, I went out of my way in our uh, testimony when um, we had uh, uh, Secretary Becerra uh, come in on the overall budget. It was actually before the budget was released, but we had sort of the top line to, to say, look, this is an area where we're, we're going to be working with you. Um, and we may have some questions about different parts of it, or should we do this rather than that, but we're not going to quibble with the overall numbers. I, I like the substantial investment. And I give the Biden administration, this is the first time in my time on that subcommittee that an administration has come in and asked for more money than we were going to give them, than we might have given them anyway. I mean, in other words, uh, uh, even the Obama administration, we always put more money into these areas than they asked for. 
Uh, we certainly did uh, in the Trump administration, which actually asked for cuts for NIH and CDC. And I'm remembering lecturing Mick Mulvaney in my office about what a dumb idea this was and that, God forbid, if something terrible happened, you'd be, be the equivalent of cutting defense on the eve of a war. And lo and behold, it did happen. Uh, and we're very fortunate that they did not get the CDC and the NIH uh, and the strategic stockpile budgets that they asked for. They got what Congress thought on a bipartisan basis under both Republicans and Democrats was more appropriate. Uh, and we needed every bit of that and more. So uh, uh, it's, it's nice to have an administration, as much as I disagree with it in a number of areas in this area, that I think is willing to take a leadership role and, and uh, put some important ideas and, and suggestions on the table. Uh, but uh, we need to not just use the event that we have. And, and we are we're getting a lot of, again, money. The real uh, challenge is always what, what are your baseline numbers over the years going forward? You know, we can we can invest a lot in a short period of time, but if we don't maintain it, I think particularly of incentivizing public health personnel. What are we doing to make sure we have an adequate number of professional public health experts, uh, what are we doing uh, to make sure that uh, the salaries there are competitive, that the opportunities are such that we attract bright people? We, we have plenty of, uh, I, we, you know, we're, well, I wouldn't say plenty. We don't have enough doctors and uh, as it is, but uh, the public health sector is, as is often the case, uh, you know, the very much the tail on the dog. It's the private health sector where most people go to make a living and do their work, and that's fine. But uh, uh, you certainly need a robust public health system in a country this open, this fluid, this many people, uh, this exposed really to the planet. We're probably the most exposed per, uh, uh, country in the world in some ways because we're the most, um, you know, popular destination from all over the world uh, for both visits and for for long term arrivals. So, uh, uh, you know, we need to have a very robust system because Believe me, if something happens in West Africa, it'll be here in 24 hours. Now, while you're talking about the budget proposal uh, from the Biden administration, I want to ask you about the, the, the proposal that they've come forward with to invest $6.5 billion in a new agency, ARPA-H. It's modeled after a, a DARPA at the Defense, Defense Department, but it's meant to accelerate through NIH, through the National Institutes of Health, accelerate public-private partnerships that'll bring forward uh, better solutions on cancer, Alzheimer's, other chronic uh, diseases. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's early days. We haven't, uh, uh, you know, come around 100% on this because we still have questions, but uh, I'm a big fan of DARPA, which I think has done great work. It's high risk, high reward kind of investment, uh, but uh, no question, uh, uh, that the uh, reward has, has more than merited the investment in the defense area. So the concept is, uh, is an appealing concept. Uh, I think uh, our big concern initially, and I've had extensive private discussions with Dr. Collins about this, other people in NIH, number one, we didn't want something new that was separate from, if this is you know, a new part of NIH, a new mechanism within it, that's good. We didn't need competing uh, agency, so to speak, out here. And that looks like that's the plan. And uh, I think NIH initially had the same concerns. I've been around, you know, particularly on this committee on uh, education, I'll use as an example, where people tend to get attracted to whatever the shiny new object is. I remember a number of years ago when President Obama was there and um, uh, the, uh, the education program was something called Race to the Top. Well, you know, race to the top it sounded wonderful and it was great, but it was funded at the expense of programs like Trio and Gear Up that have a longer history and that are very successful, producing millions of college graduates for the United States uh, from populations that, I mean, most of these kids are first generation college students. So, we, you know, we were cannibalizing proven programs to try and do something new that wasn't likely to last past an administration and then race to the top is no longer around, so to speak. So I think you fund the basic program. So uh, we want to make sure that uh, that HARPA fits that model, that it lets us utilize the institutes across the NIH in a creative way, 
uh, form partnerships with private entities. We certainly saw that in COVID-19. I remember Dr. Collins, and we, we had multiple discussions over the course of this uh, pandemic uh, telling me, said, Tom, we're doing things in weeks and months that we haven't done there, you know, would have taken years beforehand. So we really saw some, and if that's what this is, then I'm for it. That second concern, and I made a point uh, in the hearing when I raised this with Secretary Becerra, uh, I said, I, I want you to understand, this does not change my commitment to your top line number. $6.5 billion is a lot of money. Now it's not a one shot deal. It's over a three year right. period. Um, but as I recall, the DARPA, uh, you know, budgets around 3.8 billion, something like that, if I remember from our hearings. And, uh, uh, you know, is, let's just make sure we don't overfund this at the beginning. I would want to keep the top line budget that the administration's proposing. Uh, and, and if this is the right number, great. If, it, if we should start a little bit lower as we sort of build the protocols and make sure this works and it pans out, um, I don't want something that that uh, doesn't work, although, um, you know, again, I walk into it with the expectation that it would and the hope that it would, but uh, $6.5 billion is a big bet. Uh, and I might want to start at the table with a little bit smaller bet and put that money. I'll give you an example. Uh, we're only funding 11, 12% of the proposals we're getting at the National Cancer Institute right now. And it's not because we're not doing more than we've ever done. I mean, uh, we are, uh, you know, but uh, over the course of the entire, uh, you know, uh, NIH apparatus, we're probably in, you know, funding 20, 22%, 23% of the proposals. Our problem is the scientific breakthroughs in cancer right now are just coming at extraordinary speed. This is a real moment of cancer research. And so I want to make sure we're funding enough there. Um, and uh, again, we've made progress over the last uh, uh, few years. Uh, we were down to as low as I think eight percent of funding of cancer, uh, and that's that's still our number one killer. That's over six hundred thousand Americans a year die of cancer, and that's with a recovery rate of over sixty percent that we have now, which is an extraordinary achievement. But uh, we're losing as many people to cancer every year as we've lost in the pandemic uh, over the last year, in rough order of magnitude. So. Uh, those are the type of questions. But again, I, I want to I don't want to be critical here. I want to laud the uh, Biden administration for making a substantial uh, commitment and uh, a substantial and important proposal and introducing a new idea. Now it's our job as uh, legislators to ask tough questions and uh, to make sure we use the resources. But we're on the same page. And uh, uh, in this area, um, you know, I, I really look forward to uh, working with an administration that I know is committed uh, to making substantial investments in biomedical research and public health preparedness. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you've been very vocal about the need to get to the bottom of the controversy surrounding the origins of SARS-CoV-2. We know that there's kind of two broad hypotheses. One is that it emerged through zoonosis, through a natural process of mutation and migration from animal species to human. Uh, there's also the, the proposition that gain of function research, that is manipulation of, of the virus in laboratories, that gain of function research has spread ar around the world into many different institutional settings, often with very weak regulation and oversight. Some of that was going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So we're lacking data on to support either of those, but I do believe that what we're seeing here is a kind of recognition that the gain of function is a threat, if not that that type of research is disseminated and globally into many different settings uh, where the oversight and accountability is oftentimes quite weak. Tell us a little bit, how do we crack the nut specifically on Wuhan, where the Chinese are pretty dug in here, but more broadly, what are we going to need to do in terms of biosafety and biosecurity in this current era? Yeah, I, I think the first thing that's important is that we recognize that we have um, two working theories here and that we not uh, vilify people that are associated with either one of those. I mean, these yes. are people 
that are trying to get to the truth. And what looked uh, like, uh, you know, it's been interesting to me just following these, how, uh, you know, I think initially most people thought it was probably uh, a natural spread. But, I, you know, in the last few months, I think the pendulum swung the other way. Uh, and it certainly now looks more like it, it was a lag escape incident, not a deliberate design, but a really bad thing. And I think that, you know, honestly, the Chinese have been very bad actors. They've contributed uh, to this because they've not opened up everything. They've not revealed everything they know. They have stonewalled from the very beginning. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you're not guilty, then don't act like you're guilty. And I think they're, in, in this case, acting like they're guilty. Uh, and they did measures early on, such as prohibiting travel from Wuhan to Beijing, but not prohibiting it from Wuhan to San Francisco. Uh, you know, there was a lot of thing. And, and we know they manipulated the uh, uh, the uh, uh, personal protection equipment market to their advantage and bought up stuff all over the world. I mean, this risk, it looks terrible. Uh, they've not been a, a good actor in this. Uh, and I think probably initially a lot of our people uh, you know, didn't want to believe that. And I think they're probably dealing with scientists who are very much like them. You know, they, they're they trying to get at the truth. They're worried about public health. They're, they're not necessarily dedicated members of the regime, but we are dealing with a very dangerous regime here. And one that uh, has a very ruthless competitive uh, attitude in my view. So uh, we need to know this number one uh, to, uh, uh, just get at the truth and guard against this. As you point out, we may need to rethink uh, gain of function kind of research protocols for the entire planet, not just for China. This is, um, you know, uh, and um, uh, we need to be able to do this in a thoughtful way where we don't have everybody trying to score political points uh, on this one way or the other. But again, uh, you know, my instinct uh, right now is... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm very worried that the Chinese didn't cooperate. A lot of people died and trillions of dollars worth of damage were done uh, because they were slow, clearly, in notifying it. I think they uh, probably manipulated the World Health Organization. That's a huge loss because that will undermine the credibility of an institution that we really need. There needs to be a World Health Organization, but it needs to be something that everybody believes in uh, is above being manipulated, whose only objective is the protection of human health and cooperation across international borders, sharing of information and resources in times of crisis in ways uh, that save people. So there's been a lot of damage done here, I think, uh, by the Chinese, quite frankly. And uh, uh, I'm sad to say, I see it spill into domestic politics. I hear a lot of people, you know, whatever our, our financial commitment was to the Wuhan um, laboratory, and it's, that's serious. We should know what that was. And it was through a third party. We're talking maybe $600,000. That, that's not a lot of money in the operation of a lab. It sounds like, and that was spread over several years. So there was every reason for us to be looking at bat populations in China, given czars and MERS and and that beforehand. That's the other thing that, that concerns me now about the natural thing. We have not really identified, you know, where this came from. And it's now been well over a year uh, that we've been looking into this. And we, we identified Zars and MERS a lot quicker. Uh, and again, that argues again for a lab accident as opposed to uh, uh, something else. Uh, but uh, again, we should also remember some of the information we got were some very, from some very brave doctors and scientists in China, uh, some of whom died, you know, um, as a result of the disease. And, um, um, you know, so the, uh, it's not the human beings I, I doubt here, but I do think uh, there's a regime that acted outside the norms and uh, everybody paid a horrific price for it. And, it looks to me much more like a cover-up right now. If it's not open everything up, let's have a real investigation. Uh, they haven't done that from the very beginning. So I think there's a lot to answer for here. Thank you. Um, one point I want to raise here, there's, there is, a, there is a, um, a risk in this current very overheated controversy that some of our folks like Dr. Fauci uh, and, and, and some of our scientists who were partners 
in what were legitimate research in, uh, efforts, partnerships uh, in China, that um, they that the environment's becoming overly politicized. There's been uh, quite an increase in the attacks upon uh, Dr. Fauci coming from former President Trump, from others recently, members of Congress and others. Um, what are your what's your view on that? That seems to be a pretty dangerous phenomenon. I think it's a very dangerous phenomenon. Look, look uh, uh, Anthony Fauci has spent a lifetime you know, as one of the premier experts in infectious diseases. He's worked for multiple presidents of both parties. Uh, you know, as a man of outstanding personal character and distinguished uh, uh, academic and institutional achievement. That, that's just true. Uh, and so whether he was right or wrong at the very beginning about lab versus not, I mean, he's made the point more eloquently than I can. Probably his biggest role was, was in helping coordinate uh, Operation Warp Speed. Now, there's a lot of, that's been such a tremendous success. There's a lot of people that uh, deserve a lot of credit there. And you know, I, I think uh, Alex Azar deserves a lot of credit. Our, our, uh, the Trump era uh, secretary for uh, health and human services, I think Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins, I think a lot of people I don't know in the private sector deserve a lot of credit here too. So, um, uh, but we should just remember that. Uh, the response has been extraordinary. It's been uneven. You know, we were overtaken by something we didn't understand that nobody had any experience with in living memory. You know, we have not had a global pandemic like this since 1918, 1919. Um, and probably there was a, a certain amount of complacency at every level that we can always fix things. We can always solve things. We can always, but, you know, this could have happened with a MERS or a ZARS, but we got on top of it fast enough. We worked together internationally well enough. This could always happen with something like an Ebola, but we've, again, gotten on top of it. So, but you just got to realize that it's, it's sort of like playing baseball. They, if they keep hitting fly balls at you, sooner or later, you're going to drop one. Sooner or later, you know, everything doesn't work just right. Uh, and uh, this is one of those instances, and, and we have, have to deal with it. But vilifying people uh, that are operating in good faith that have careers uh, uh, that are distinguished is not helpful. Uh, and again, most of the people I see doing this, quite frankly, are not people that voted to help us have the resources that we needed to deal with this in the first place. You know, if you didn't vote for the Labor H budget that, that funded a lot of this stuff, don't lecture me on what we didn't do right. I mean, you know, belly up to the bar and cast a vote. Uh, and and spend some resources here on what's an important national investment. And so, again, uh, I, I think historians will sort all this out. Uh, you know, I guess we're all, you know, looking at, at Dr. Fauci's emails now. I don't see anything very incriminating there. I see a person wrestling with a crisis. I can't believe he had enough time to read that many emails and respond to them and try and, and be that helpful. So, um, you know, count me as one that uh, thinks, this is sort of like when we went after some of our own nuclear scientists in the early era of the nuclear age, and we were worried about um, their loyalty or worried about, you know, how were the Russians getting access to nuclear, uh, you know, technology. And yes, they, they were very capable at espionage, but they also had some pretty capable scientists of their own. They're pretty smart people themselves, uh, you know, and, you know, tearing ourselves apart uh, internally isn't going to help us prepare for another one of these things. And uh, it's not going to encourage people to go into public health, to go into these positions if instead of working with them, we're going to vilify them and try and score points at their extent. So, again, I, I don't find this a fruitful or helpful debate. Thank you. And I'm very heartened by what you've said in defense of Dr. Fauci. That's terribly important. In the uh, Biden administration's budget proposal for FY22, um, 2022, they're proposing 10 billion for global health. And within that envelope of 10 billion, there's a billion for global health security, uh, which the understanding is that this, is, this will be in the regular budget for several years going out. And that's an important step, it seems to me in moving the butt to or towards that type of budget measure. 
And within that 1 billion is 250 million that will go towards the early stages of a pandemic financing effort, uh, still to be still in the works in terms of negotiations and the like. But let's start out, first of all, your thoughts on this move to build into the normal budgeting process, a billion a year for global health security. I'm very much supportive of that. But let, let me pull back one step on the budget process because it's, it's something I'm really worried about right now. If you look at the overall Biden budget, it's about a 10% increase roughly, but it's very focused on domestic spending. Uh, the domestic budget goes up about 18%. The defense budget about 1.7, which inflation adjusted is actually a modest cut. Uh, on the defense side, you know, we've had several years where we've had a succession of, I think, really fine secretaries of defense, uh, you know, Secretary Mattis in particular, who reoriented our thinking toward great power rivalry and uh, Secretary Esper. And both of them would tell you we made some really important investments in their tenures, but we need about a three to five percent real growth to sustain where they think we need to go. I think that's true. Um, and uh, uh the Biden budget doesn't do that. And so we're going to, whereas Department of Education, uh, you know, is increased 41%. I say this guy used to be an educator and I'm for them having a robust budget too, but a 41% increase in one year is a little much. Uh, so what I worry about is in the budget battles to come, uh, that if we're, if that domestic spending number doesn't come down and the defense number doesn't go up, you won't get a bipartisan agreement. So while we will agree on individual things like NIH, like this global health initiative that you're talking about, if we stumble into a continuing resolution because we can't reach a broader agreement, none of those things happen. We're just living with last year's budget. Now, I think that's actually, as I tell my friends, the best guarantee the Democrats will come to the table is I promise you, Senator Leahy and Congresswoman Delora did not become the, the, the chair people of, of uh appropriations to uh, to live with a CR that is Donald Trump's last negotiated budget with Congress. So uh, we have a powerful weapon to bring people to the table. But there will be people that will argue that we will be better off with the CR because it, it won't spend as much money. And most of those people are not very familiar with the damage that CRs do to the military, to every agency of government when you can't have an active adjustment in a budget in a real time budget process. The, the example I always use, if you have a CR, we needed 100 Abrams tanks last year uh, and we need 65 this year, you're still buying 100 Abrams tanks. You know, that's just silly. And you can't start a new project. If you need a new set of runways someplace or a new anchor, we're bringing on the KC-46 at Tinker Air Force Base and uh, we're going to be the long term. We can't build those things under a CR. You know, we have to have a regular budget. So that's problem number one. Now, in terms of the health security uh, stuff, I, I agree with all this. I think these are modest investments uh, that do a lot to protect the American people. And again, just as in a military sense, it's even more true in a bio, biomedical sense. You can't defend the United States in isolation. You have to be forward deployed. Uh, you have to deal with disease. And, you know, we actually have a long history of this uh, we're, we, we've done better than we think. I remember years ago visiting a naval uh, medical research station in Peru, and uh, they were doing some really important work on Zika at the time. And I asked, I said, how did this get here? You know, and oh, gosh, you know, in World War II, we lost more soldiers to disease in the Pacific than we did to combat in combat. So we decided we probably needed a network of uh, research stations in tropical areas to study disease. And we have them and they're decades old and they do really important work. Uh, so they're an important part of our defense establishment because you never know where you're gonna have to fight. And uh, we need uh, you know, our troops uh, 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 immunized and, and with the best therapies available, uh, but that spills over in civilian research as well. So. Again, uh, operating around the world, making sure that we make investments, because again, we can do things that other people can't do. We, we do have resources and infrastructure uh, that nobody else in the world can rival, and, um, uh, but it does take regular investment and take some new thinking now and then. As I said during the Ebola crisis, you remember we had 
one patient that actually got from Africa to Dallas uh, and uh, on, an, on a flight. And fortunately, they were able to locate him and isolate him. And um, we didn't get a major outbreak in the United States. But where do you want to fight Ebola, West Africa or West Dallas? I know between the two where I'd rather fight it. And, uh, and we did. We deployed considerable resources there. I think we did it in a good way. I think we left some health infrastructure there that will serve us and the people there long term. So those are the kind of smart investments we need to, to think about. Thank you. Uh, you brought up the Department of Defense. I want to focus for just a moment around its pot, its role internationally. We talked about DARPA as an institution that is experimental, new public-private partnerships, thinking out of the box around technology and applications. We have the uh, the overseas labs, we have the surveillance system, GEIS, uh, we have um, uh, research that's been going on for decades through the labs. And we obviously we've seen here in the domestic response, the DOD support of civilian efforts in terms of logistics, planning, delivery and the like. And I know there's discussion now around the DOD role as, as we expand our engagement internationally. There's another issue, which is around medical personnel, the career core within, with, within the Department of Defense and, and making sure that we protect that population. So it takes a good 10 years to train up those folks. You're on the, the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. Your thoughts on, on these matters around the significance of the overseas engagement by DOD and support of civilian health security? It's very important. And I was kind of surprised in the Biden budget, there's actually a proposed cut. We have a particular agency uh, in defense that thinks about pandemic disease and, and helps plan for it. Uh, and its budget was cut by like 40%. Now, I don't think that's because the Biden administration doesn't think this is important. I think they do think it's important. Every other investment uh, you know, on the civilian side shows that they think it's important. Uh, I think they just have cut the defense budgets or, or you know, clamped down enough that, that people are trying to, I mean, the main mission of defense is obviously a, a military one, and you have to have a military capable of engaging and defeating a near-peer opponents any place in the world. And uh, I don't think we're funding that adequately in the president's proposal, in my view. Um, but uh, and I think some of these other areas then get squeezed, but they're important areas. Uh, and Defense Department does house uh, some capabilities that nobody else has. Uh, uh, and we see it uh, again. Its main mission uh, is always to fight and win wars. Nothing should take away from that. But having the ability, for instance, when we had the tsunamis in Indonesia to respond, having the ability to help our friends and allies, the Japanese, uh, when they, uh, you know, had their tsunami slash nuclear problems, we deployed 19,000 U.S. military personnel to assist the Japanese government in the relief of its people. This is an advanced and capable country uh, and a country that is very important to our own defense and a, a very firm ally of the United States. So uh, having the ability to do that or having the ability to go to Haiti uh, you know, in, uh, when we, we had earthquakes there and disasters with hospital ships and the ability to uh, provide relief, that kind of capability obviously is necessary in a wartime situation, but it can be used in peacetime, cap uh, you know, opportunities. And it's, a, it's an enormously attractive uh, thing to the rest of the world that the United States has these kind of resources and will deploy in this kind of way. Uh, and, and in a, a disinterested way. It's a great diplomatic advantage for us. Um, I remember once talking to a very experienced uh, 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 combat commander, and uh, uh, I asked him what was important uh, to him. And when he was deploying troops, he said, I want to make sure when I'm deploying troops that I'm, uh, when I send them someplace, these aren't the first Americans they've ever seen. I, I want there to have been diplomats ahead and I want there to have been aid. I want them to have a favorable impression of the United States of America. I don't want the first thing that they see to be combat troops. Um, uh, and he said that makes a big difference in how we're received uh, and the cooperation we get from a local population when and if. I thought it was a very astute answer. You know, it's always interesting to talk to to military leaders because they're almost always the biggest proponents of a robust diplomatic 
foreign assistance. They see national power at a much more broadly than just a military focus. They see all these other elements of soft power that uh, are advantageous to them. So maintaining this ability back to the point uh, of uh, our military, which has unique logistical uh, abilities, unique assets that it can deploy, uh, maintaining you know the appropriate kind of healthcare response there, as long as it doesn't take away from the main mission, is important to us. And again, it's an asset that very few other countries have, and nobody has on anywhere like the scale of the United States. So if there's something global going on, we can be an important player for good. Um, and uh, and our, our service people, you know, are, are just amazing that they will do that. They, they take on risk in lots of ways that, uh, beyond the traditional ways we think of uh, in, in serving your country in uniform. We send you into a, a place that's been ravaged by a natural disaster or you're dealing with disease, you're running risk of a whole different sort. And maybe a risk you didn't even uh, think about when you signed to serve the United States of America, put on a uniform, but you're doing it. Uh, and so I'm proud of them. I want to make sure they have the uh, whatever it is they need to succeed wherever we put them and whatever mission, mission we ask them to undertake. Thank you. Um, we have a few more minutes remaining. I want to talk uh, for a minute about the Coalition for, for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, CEPI. This was an entity that was created after Ebola in order to uh, accelerate the development of vaccines against dangerous pathogens where the marketplace was weak in terms of bringing private sector in and, and use, the, use CEPI as a as an intermediary and a, and a catalyst to get the private sector connected up. It's been quite successful. It's proven to be very important in the creation of the COVAX, the solidarity mechanism to try and get vaccines uh, to low and middle income countries. It's, it's showed uh, great progress in accelerating the development of a number of the vaccines that are now being used it's also getting into innovations in manufacturing capacities so that we can get expanded manufacturing capacity for vaccines. Uh, and, it's, and it's now looking at the next five-year stint in its lifespan to start looking at therapies and diagnostics, accelerating the development of those. And it's proposing to the U.S. government that the U.S. become a major technical and financial partner over, over, many, over the next five-year period. Your thoughts on CEPI? Uh, again, money well spent, you know, investments uh, well made. And uh, the dividends are obvious and, and frankly, sometimes uh, immediate. And uh, so, again, in the context of the budget and, you know, when we see the damage uh, that this pandemic has inflicted upon our own economy, this is like the most modest of insurance <laughs> investments to me, uh, to have these capabilities. And uh, again, to recognize we need uh, not just national, but multinational institutions and efforts to deal with it. And we're going to always play a unique role there. And there's going to be some controversy about that. Uh, but, uh, you know, how is this much different than, uh, you know, the Marshall Plan or something, uh, you know, when we thought enlightened self-interest means we need a strong Europe. We, you know, and we're going to make some investments here beyond military investments to help get this done. Well, we need uh, a strong, uh, you know, biomedical defense system that operates globally, uh, and we need to, you know, to pay the resources. We will be the biggest beneficiary uh, in the end of these kind of investments. And uh, again, I remember years ago um, at the when we're dealing with Ebola, and I think it was my first year as chairman of the Labor Aid sub subcommittee. And so I talked to Dr. Collins and I'd never been to NIH. And I said, hey, I'd like to come out, see if some of my members would like to come out and just, you know, have you show us on ground some of the, the things that you do and educate us. And we did. And, and now it's an annual feature. Uh, we do that uh, since it's a, a quick trip. And uh, uh, I think we missed last year, obviously, because of COVID, but we've done it uh, uh, my successor, now chairwoman of the full committee, Rosa Delora, likes it and does it too. So it's, it's a, and we get a lot of bipartisan participation. But in the very first one, um, and we were talking about Ebola and what we were doing there, we were making substantial investments. The vaccine had just been developed. And I, I wish I could remember her name, but Dr. Collins introduced me 
to a woman whose work had, had laid the groundwork for the vaccine. And she said, here, let me show you where I got my idea. She pulled out a notebook from the 1990s that she had her original idea and went to the page. This is where this started. And because we once we had the money, we could pursue it and boom, it worked. Uh, you know, that kind of preparation, having people of that kind of talent, uh, thinking about things that are unthinkable and uh, that you hope never happen, but you better be prepared for if they do, uh, is, is just priceless. So again, these are, the, these are all uh, the kinds of investments we ought to be making. And uh, in the end, we know they'll save lives and we know that they will uh, save, you know, trillions of dollars. Uh, Congressman, you've been very generous with us this morning uh, in sharing all of your thoughts over this this hour with us on so many different topics. I just want to thank you for your leadership in Congress, uh, your leadership on health security, your contributions to CSIS, which have been so valuable and so substantial over several years. We're just really grateful to you. And thank you for being with us today. Well, all the way around. Thank you. And thank the folks at CSIS. They're an important part of uh, our, our capabilities as a country to deal with the challenges that we have and uh, have a lot of very gifted people there doing a lot of great work for the United States and, uh, and contributing, honestly, to a much more secure planet. So thanks for all CSIS does. It's my privilege to, to get to work with you guys. Thank you. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Bulver and Samantha Chivers. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you.